Please remain standing for the reading of God's word, which this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Please keep your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 12, and let's pray. Lord, we love your kingdom. We love all that it represents, but especially because you are the one who wears the crown. As we look at your word this morning, would you show us the true beauty and nature of your kingdom more clearly? Would you give us a vision, a passion uh, for your kingdom? And would you help us see it uh, in contrast to all the other options that surround us? Show us your beauty and majesty this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the... um, classic competitions for trying to inspire or get young people interested in engineering is the Popsicle Bridge Building Contest. This is a big deal. Some of our students have actually participated in this uh, before. A lot of high schools and middle schools around the country do this. It's organized by the uh, American Society of Civil Engineers. It's like an official thing. And the idea is that students must build a bridge that's at least 24 inches long, that's wide enough for a matchbox car to travel across, and that is um, uh, made only out of popsicle sticks and Elmer's glue. Those are the only two construction materials that you're allowed to use. And there are awards for innovation and for aesthetics, but the main, the primary contest deals with efficiency. And the way that they measure that is by 
taking how much load the bridge can bear divided by the weight of the bridge itself. And to test that, they put the bridge under stress. They hang weights from the center of it, and they keep adding those weights to see how much load the bridge can bear until the bridge falls apart. If it doesn't hold at least five pounds, it's disqualified. No dice. Uh, In a recent competition uh, earlier this year, uh, some of the bridges were able to hold over 300 pounds, which is pretty impressive. So, So how do you test the quality of a model bridge like that? You put it under stress. The load it's able to bear will reveal its quality. Well, God promises to do something similar at the end of time. Not to the bridges that we build, but to the kingdoms that we invest in and belong to in order to reveal their true quality. He's going to put them under stress. He's going to shake them, as our passage puts it. To shake both the heavens and the earth in order to expose every sham kingdom. To shake it until it breaks so that the only kingdom left standing is the real one. The only one that's bigger than this creation and therefore can never be shaken. And our passage this morning invites us into a comparison between two such kingdoms. Or rather, between two versions of the same kingdom. The kingdom of God under the old covenant given to Israel at Mount Sinai. And the kingdom of God, excuse me, under the new covenant given to all nations through faith in Jesus Christ. One of those kingdoms is represented by Mount Sinai, the, the other by Mount Zion. One is dominated by fear and terror, the other by joyful worship. So it's a comparison of two kingdoms. But these two kingdoms that we see here in our text are not the only two options that people face today, nor were they the only two options in the author's day or the only two kingdoms implied in our passage. So apart from these two versions of God's kingdom, there is a myriad of other options available that we can summarize as the kingdoms of this world, competing dominions. On earth, whether you know nation states or cultural movements or world religions uh, that compete on earth and against heaven. But among all of these kingdoms, the kingdom of God under the old covenant, the kingdoms of this world, and the kingdom of God under the new covenant in Christ, only one of them will survive the stress test at the end. When God shakes the cosmos. And Hebrews tells us that if we have Jesus, we belong to that better kingdom wherein real worship is possible. And so what I want to do uh, with this text is, is enter into this competition, this comparison among kingdoms to look at, at chapter 12, 18 to 19 and consider how these kingdoms compare, like model bridges, you know, Who does it exist for? Who's on the team? What holds that kingdom together? And what 
it all leads to as a result. And then in light of that comparison, we're invited to make a response in our passage. Uh, We'll consider our response. So we'll start where the author starts, uh, with the kingdom of God under the old covenant, verses 18 to 21. Now, if you've been following our series through the book of Hebrews, or if you've uh, read Hebrews or otherwise familiar with this book, you'll remember that one of the major reasons that the author wrote this book is because the church he's writing to is facing really intense pressure to leave the gospel of Jesus behind and go back to living as though Jesus had not yet come, or as though he wasn't the Messiah, to go back to Judaism and the old covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. There was intense pressure to do this, and so throughout the book, he had, the author has, has made uh, great links to show us how Jesus compares to all of these different components of the old covenant to show how Jesus is better. He's a better word, a better messenger, a better priest from a better priesthood who offers better sacrifices for a better purification who fulfills better promises and offers us a better rest. Jesus is better in every way than the old covenant. And so in keeping with that line of argumentation, as he now kind of continues his exhortation to persevere in the faith, last week we saw this call to run our race with endurance, uh, looking to Jesus and and. Uh, remembering the Father's discipline and striving for peace and holiness. He's, he's in that process of calling us to persevere in the faith. And as he continues to do that, he now begins this section by reminding us what God's kingdom was like under that old covenant, what it was like, how it was dominated by fear and distance rather than worship and belonging. And, and he brings us into that memory by taking us back through Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 4 to the very mountain where God made his covenant with Israel, to Mount Sinai, and what the experience of approaching God there was like. So verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses, Moses who could enter God's presence face to face, Moses said, I tremble with fear. So so what can we say about the kingdom of God under the old covenant at Sinai? Not that we're in any position to judge God on the way he accomplishes his plan. I mean, this was his plan. Uh, But he's inviting us to make a comparison here. And so, so, you know, as we approach this little popsicle stick bridge, what, what do we see? What's going on here? Who does it exist for? Who's included on the team, what holds it together, and what will be the ultimate result? So the first question, who is this for? It's clearly for God. God is the center of this kingdom. Every kingdom has a king, and that king is the centerpiece. 
He's the center of Sinai. He is the ruler who speaks and the object of worship. They've gathered around God. There's nothing special about this mountain apart from the fact that God chose to come down on it. God's the centerpiece. He's the king. And, and this is a God in the book of Exodus who is merciful and compassionate and gracious. He has just delivered his people from centuries of oppression in Egypt and rescued them and brought them to himself, bore them on eagles' wings. But he is a God who is not to be trifled with. He is a holy God. He is above us and over us and beyond us in his radiance and his majesty and his moral perfection. And that holiness of this God is what's emphasized here and on display. So God is the center of his kingdom. The kingdom revolves around God, but who's on the team? Who is included in this kingdom? Well, the, old, the, the kingdom under the Old Covenant uh, was unique to the people of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom God promised to make into a great nation, and whom God chose to be his special covenant people. So that's who is included in this kingdom. Uh, the people of Israel, a people who, despite having been chosen by God, uh, frequently are given to sin and rebellion in God's kingdom against their, their covenant God. And so, so what holds this kingdom together then under the old covenant? What's the glue? Well, according to the terms of the covenant, what holds this kingdom together is the faithfulness of Israel. The faithfulness of Israel. God will always keep his promises. But for the kingdom to work under this covenant, Israel must keep up their end of the deal as well. Those were the terms. God says to Israel at Sinai in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If Israel's sin and unfaithfulness is hung as a weight on that bridge, it will bring it down. Their faithfulness is the glue that holds that kingdom together. And so you put all of those uh, things together, a kingdom that centers around a holy God that includes a frequently rebellious Israel and that is held together by Israel's obedience, what are the results of that kind of kingdom? The scene that you have in Exodus 19, that's the result. It's dominated by terror and distance. Terror and distance. Those are, are the results under the Old Covenant. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearer beg that no further be messages spoken to them. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Terror for sinners approaching the presence of a holy God and therefore distance from that God. That was the result. No security or lasting intimacy, insecurity, fear. They were unable to truly draw near. 
Now, God made accommodations for that. We've looked at the Levitical priesthood and all of those kinds of things. That's not to say this is the only experience Israel had in their relationship to God. But if you're going to judge these kingdoms, this is what we're looking at with the kingdom of God under the old covenant, dominated by distance and fear. And that's what those who were who were pressuring the 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 church uh, being written to in the book of Hebrews. This is what they were pressuring them to come back to. This kind of experience that makes no sense. That that's a and and he's trying to point that out. How foolish it would be to live as though Jesus wasn't really here. That there was no new covenant in him. That's what you would end up with. And that wasn't designed to last forever. Why hold on to a kingdom which falters under the weight of my own sin when there's a better kingdom available? But before we look at the better kingdom, the new covenant kingdom, we need to take a moment to consider the kingdoms of this world, the myriad of other options, alternatives that people come up with on their own as their own answer to the problem of God's kingdom under the Old Covenant. It's easy to conclude, when you look at this scene at Sinai, uh, this terrifying scene, that it's easy to conclude that the problem is we've made sin too sinful. That's the problem here. Or that we've made God too holy. And so we're giving God a bad name by, by you know, promoting this picture and we're beating people up with a burden they can't bear what the world really needs instead is blank fill in the blank and whatever you put in that blank becomes your vision of the good life the way you would create the covenant blessings if you were in charge and so we come up with what we think the kingdom should look like and then we, what we do is we look for someone or something that can give us that vision of the good life and we crown it as king. We make it king. So we, we crown money as king. That's what's going to give us the good life. And, and we look to the dominion of Wall Street. Or we crown entertainment as king and we look to the promises of Hollywood. Or we crown Mother Nature as king, and we move to Portland. (laughs) Or we crown our nation as king, and we look to D.C. to answer all of our problems. In fact, you know, every nation state on this earth is a kind of kingdom. There's rule, there's promises, there's dominion. Moscow makes promises just like Cairo and Beijing And every cultural movement on this earth is driven by an impulse to create a certain vision of a kingdom. Every world religion does the same. Even our companies and our careers, our our personal ambitions, can take on a kingdom-like role in our lives. Where each kingdom promises to deliver some version of the good life. But what happens is that as soon as you crown something as king, it not only makes promises, it also demands loyalty and sacrifice. You have to rearrange your life around whatever you put the crown on. 
you have to pay homage and make offerings. And anyone who's not willing to pledge allegiance or pay the price becomes a suspect, an outsider, a threat to be monitored and, if necessary, demonized and marginalized, lest the kingdom be compromised. You think of the story of Saul in the Old Testament. You know, prior to that point in Israel's story, God had given Israel judges, and that had worked out pretty well. Um, That wasn't a perfect system because the judges kept sinning and dying, but, you know, but the whole point was that God was their king, and so he would raise up a judge for the moment, uh, but they would, but God was their king. Well, you get to the book of Samuel, and Israel demands a king. When they made that demand on God, they had a certain vision of the good life, a certain expectation of how they thought life should go, and a strong suspicion that God was not capable of giving it to them. They were no longer willing to trust a God that they couldn't see with their own eyes to protect them. They wanted a king that they could see. All the other nations around have a king who goes out before them and fights their battles. We want that kind of king. A king who promised safety. But that king would also demand their loyalty and their sacrifice. And even though Samuel the prophet warned them that this would happen, that he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. They didn't care. The promise of a king who would keep them safe and deliver the good life, that was too much. So God gave them what they wanted. And it worked for a little bit. Saul defeated the Ammonites. He brought safety to the land until he grew in pride and rebellion against God and became a paranoid maniac bent on preserving his own throne at any cost, even if it meant killing the Lord's anointed. Kingdoms are ruled by kings who demand loyalty and sacrifice. And and we see this same tension among the competing kingdoms in the world today. I mean, the economic disputes and the spear rattling that happens at these global summits the past week and a half, you know, Anybody who's not with us is suspect. And and so we've got to look tough and and bargain tough and whatever. And we just have this this competition. Or you think of the political rhetoric that floods our news channels and our social media feeds. I mean, you you can't just have a conversation anymore. You can barely ask a question without somebody accusing you of being disloyal to whomever they happen to crown as king. People aren't looking for dialogue. They're looking for fealty, for loyalty. It's the same way with the culture wars today. I mean, today we judge someone's effectiveness or fitness for a job 
based on their personal views on the most recent controversy rather than their actual qualifications and experience. Like, that's the litmus test we've created in our corporate world today. And, and, and so why is it, why all of the tension in politics and society and all of these kinds of things, where does this divisiveness come from? It's a clash of kingdoms. It's a clash of kingdoms. It's alternate versions of the good life, competing claims of authority and morality, warring kingdoms. That's the world we live in. And so you examine all of these bridges, these worldly kingdoms. Who are they for? Well, each one is for its own king. Whoever's wearing the crown calls the shots. Who's included in each kingdom? Whoever's loyal to the king. Our tribe. That's who this kingdom, that's who belongs to this kingdom. Those who pledge allegiance and pay the price, which is, you know, Greatly ironic in that so many of the cultural movements that champion tolerance and inclusivity today are just as exclusive in practice. Because if you don't, if you aren't part of the tribe, you're on the outside. What holds all of these worldly kingdoms together today? What's the glue? The obedience of the people. The obedience of the people. Which is funny. Because that makes it no different than the kingdom of God under the Old Covenant, where it was the faithfulness of Israel that held the kingdom together. It's no different for all of these worldly kingdoms. It's just a different lawgiver and different laws. It's still based on human effort and resolve, which means it will still result in fear and distance. Only it's a little worse than that, because at least God kept his promises you know, whereas the kings today regularly break theirs. Power corrupts. Kingdoms disappoint. Suspicion poisons our relationships. And what we're left with, when you look at all the popsicle sticks on the ground, is disillusionment and divisiveness. That's the result of warring kingdoms in this world. That's the collateral damage. We were never meant to remain under the distance and fear of the Old Covenant. But this world, in its attempt to make the holy God common and replaceable, is incapable of coming up with something better. We were made for God and His kingdom, for worship and for belonging, but that kingdom finds its own ultimate realization in the new covenant in Christ, in the better kingdom. And that's the third bridge that we need to examine. What we see in verses 22 to 24, the kingdom of God under the new covenant in Christ. If you belong to Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You have not come to to Hollywood or Moscow or Mecca or D.C., dominated by fear and distance and disillusionment and divisiveness. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the real kingdom. This is the kingdom we were meant for. The kingdom that Jesus redeems us for. Not the historical city, Jerusalem, but the heavenly city that it points to. The heavenly city Abraham was looking forward to back in chapter 11. The true Zion that is above us and that will one day come down to us. Revelation 21. That's what we're enduring for. That is what we are running our race in hopes of the kingdom of God under the new covenant in Christ. And so what do we see in this kingdom? Like, who's it for? Who wears the crown? Well, again, God's the one wearing the crown, not us. You have come to God, the judge of all. Now, What's interesting is that if you were going to kind of make a really strong comparison between the terror of the old covenant and the joy and access we have to God of the new covenant, emphasizing God as judge is probably not the aspect of God most of us would have picked to make that comparison. We, you know, and, and it's easy. If, if we're not careful, we might think that you know, what we would have seen here is a lot softer picture of God. If we're trying to make that contrast stand out. You know, blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, but you've come to the soft and cuddly Father who just wants to love on you right where you are. That's what we expect. And, and God is loving, and He loves His children unconditionally. That's all true. But that's not what He emphasizes here. You've come to God, the judge. God's love for His children is unconditional, but that doesn't make Him less holy, or mean that he isn't still judge. He's the king. That means he's the judge. In fact, you know, quite shockingly, this passage, our passage here, begins and ends by emphasizing God's holiness in terms of fire. The blazing fire at Sinai in verse 18. But guess what? The new covenant does not quench that fire. Rather, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. The new covenant does not make God less holy. What it does is allow sinners to enter his holy presence without being burned up. And, and so that brings us then to who's included in this kingdom. Who's on the team? The kingdom includes people from every tribe, every nation, every language on earth. Anyone who trusts Jesus Christ as Savior and King. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The ultimate church membership role in heaven. That's Old Testament language here for God's covenant people. But, but now it's no longer based on Israelite heritage, it's based on being united with Christ by faith. 
And you've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those who've died in Christ and are already in God's presence. They are perfected from sin. Though they're still waiting for the resurrection. When we enter God's presence here, we have a a mystic sweet communion, as the hymn puts it, with the whole church of God across time and space. There's something special about that, about coming to the true Zion. So, So who's included in God's kingdom? People from all tribes and nations, everyone who belongs to Jesus. And so there is still an exclusivity to the kingdom of God. Uh, But every kingdom is ultimately exclusive in some way. Christianity, however, and Tim Keller has made this point, Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity. Because truly anyone who belongs to Jesus, anyone is welcome in. You have to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. There's an exclusivity. But everyone's invited to do so. It doesn't matter your, your race or your gender or your age or your economic class or your nationality or your ethnicity or your education or your language or your social status or your religious upbringing. None of that matters. Everyone is invited to respond to that call. And God's grace is what gives us the power to respond. It's not even how smart I am or how much I studied the Bible and figured out this is the real God. It's all God's grace. It's the most inclusive, exclusive kingdom in the world. And the reason for that exclusivity, that necessity of personal faith in Jesus, is because the work that holds this kingdom together, the glue, is not our obedience, but His. His work is what holds this kingdom together. Such that if you're not relying on his work, your kingdom's going to fall apart. So you have to trust in Jesus. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The old covenant that was held together by Israel's obedience fell apart. The new covenant that's held together by Jesus' obedience in our place will Hold together forever because in his earthly life, he was perfectly faithful as a covenant keeper before his father. And more than that, he then took our sin and disobedience on himself to pay that price in full that we might be included in his obedience. He canceled the debt. The new covenants held together by Jesus. And that's really... I mean, that's nothing, that's not new information if if you've been reading through Hebrews. This is the point he's been making the entire book. That it's on the basis of Jesus' work that we have access to God. That sinners, people like you and me, who have rebelled against God in, in small ways and really big ways, that we, when we come to Christ through faith, are invited to draw near with confidence with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is better and he is enough. When the kingdom, where the kingdom under the old covenant was marked by fear and distance, there's no fear 
of condemnation in Christ. And therefore, no reason to keep our distance from God. It's done away with. Where the kingdoms of this world are marked by disillusion and disappointment, in Christ we are promised an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, that will never let us down. Where the kingdoms of this world are marked by suspicion and division, divisiveness, in Christ there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, there's healing and restoration, there's a place for everyone. Because everyone in Christ is invited to draw near to God with confidence and joy. And that's the result of the kingdom of God under the new covenant. That's what we see at the end. It's worship and belonging. Those are the two dominant themes of this description in verses 22 to 24. Worship and belonging. Not distance and fear or divisiveness and disillusionment, but worship and belonging. And the angels are the ones who set the tone. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's language of worship. And that's what you do in the presence of a holy God who invites you in despite your sin and unworthiness. You worship. What else can you do? That's what's happening in heaven right now by the saints who've gone before us. That's what we will do in the end when heaven comes down, Christ returns, and that's what we are invited to do right now while we remain on earth. To enter God's presence in worship. It's interesting. Notice the, the past tense of the language here. You have come to Mount Zion. Think about that. Not you will come someday when you die and go to be with the Lord or Jesus comes back. You have come to Mount Zion. In Christ, there's an already and a not yet to entering God's presence in worship. Through Jesus, by His Spirit, when we lift our worship to God here on earth, we are already offering it in His presence in heaven, even though we're not there yet. That's amazing. That's the dominant theme of God's new covenant kingdom in Christ. Worship and belonging. We belong with Him. In Christ, we belong to a better kingdom wherein true worship is possible. And there will come a day when all of these kingdoms will undergo a test. When God will hang His weights on the bridge, He will shake heaven and earth, and only one kingdom will be left standing. And because of that, there's only one proper response. And that's what we see in verses 25 to 29, the urgency of heeding God's warning and the joy of offering acceptable worship in His presence. So verses 25 to 29, having examined the differences between Sinai and Hollywood and Wall Street and Zion, and, and seeing so clearly the supremacy of the kingdom of God in Christ, of, of the heavenly Zion, 
On that basis, the author now warns us not to ignore the one who warns us from heaven. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? And, and the one who warns us from heaven, if you go all the way back to verses 1 and 2 of the book, that's Jesus. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. He's the one warning us that only one kingdom will prevail. And, and so take that warning seriously. Which king you worship and which kingdom you align yourself with is not a matter of taste or preference. It is a matter of life and death on an eternal scale. Most kings demand your allegiance because they need you. The success of the kingdom rests on the obedience of the people. Jesus demands our allegiance because we need him. There's no other way to escape judgment. There's no other way to find wholeness and significance and abundant and eternal life. He alone can offer it. And he loves us enough to tell us that. Because the day will come when every false kingdom will be exposed. Verse 26. At that time, back at Sinai... God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The author takes us back to a pledge that God made through the prophet Haggai, chapter 2, where he promised, where God promises to restore the glory of his temple, the glory of his special dwelling place with his people, worship and belonging, to restore it by shaking the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts." It's the picture, you know, if you have the, the elementary school bully who keeps stealing all the kids' lunch money, well, one day there's going to come along a judge who picks him up by his ankles and empties his pockets and restores it where it's supposed to be. That's what God's going to do to all of these false kingdoms. And in restoring the glory to his true temple, he exposes the emptiness of all of these other man-made kingdoms. The author of Hebrews explains that this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. Man-made kingdoms. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Only one kingdom will survive the stress test. Only the kingdom of God in Christ. And so how do we respond to that? I mean, you, you, you compare the kingdoms, you, see, you do the stress test, only one's still there. How do we respond to that? Well, don't ignore God's warning, verse 25, 
and offer acceptable worship to God. Verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If you have Jesus, you belong on the winning team. You belong to the winning team. Be grateful for that. In fact, if you really stop and think about what that means, that by God's grace, nothing I've done, I'm included on the winning team, how can you be anything but grateful? Be grateful for His grace and do what you were saved to do. What dominates this new covenant scene? Worship and belonging. Draw near to God through Christ and offer acceptable worship to God. Worship that that truly honors God. What does that mean? What are we talking about with acceptable worship? That's actually what he's going to describe throughout chapter 13. He's going to answer that question for us. And so we'll look at that next week. But it's worship that ultimately treats God as God. It's it's not the kind of worship I like to give. It's the kind of worship that brings an offering to God on his terms, not mine. That, That recognizes his worthiness and responds appropriately and accordingly. You're welcome to cheat and read ahead in chapter 13 if you're curious what that looks like. But this worship that we offer God, it's to be done with reverence and awe. Our God who loves us deeply and lavishes on us His mercy and grace is also our King and our Judge, holy and above us, a a consuming fire. So there's an intimacy and an awe. When we worship God, the new covenant doesn't make God less holy. It allows sinners like us to approach our holy God with confidence and reverence and gratitude and joy. And so let's live like new covenant people. Let's be about belonging, about relationship with God and with each other, a relationship that you know, as much as we might enjoy certain hobbies or common, have common occupations, that's not what brings us together. What brings us together is our common Savior and King Jesus. So let's be about belonging and let's be about worship with reverence and gratitude, with humility and confidence, a worship that's not just what we do Sunday morning but what we do with our whole lives, offering them up to God as a pleasing sacrifice. Because we belong to a better kingdom. One that will not let us down and can never be shaken. We are marching to Zion. We are citizens of heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, would you give us a gnawing dissatisfaction with all lesser things? Lord, there's so much temptation to throw our allegiance and our hope into the fading kingdoms of this world. It's only going to end in disappointment and divisiveness. Lord, there's only one kingdom that's able to truly bring people from all walks of life together into a single family. There's only one kingdom that recognizes rightly who is wearing the crown. So God, would you give us a desire and a hunger for your kingdom? And would you give us eyes to see the parts of our lives that that are not brought into submission to that kingdom? Would you give us joy and gratitude that in Jesus we've been brought into that kingdom? And would you give us faith and humility to worship you the way you deserve? Not just in our singing, not just in our prayers, in the way we speak to each other, in the way that we serve one another, in, the, in our thoughts in our attitudes, all of life, a living sacrifice to you. Because at the end of the day, only you are worthy. Lord, would you do that by your Spirit in our hearts? And would we keep our eyes fixed on the prize that awaits? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.